So we're in week three of our series, Lessons from the Wilderness. And we've been looking at stories of Israel from the time of their wilderness wanderings and seeing what kind of message or lesson there is in these stories for us in our time. And today, we're actually looking at the story of how Israel ends up spending those 40 years in the wilderness. It's not something we think about that often, but if you look at a map, you know there's no way it takes 40 years to get from Egypt to Israel. So what are they doing out there? Why are they in the wilderness in the first place? And why for so long? And today is the kind of story behind why that happened. But before we dive in, I want to ask you a question, something for you to kind of consider as we're talking, and it's this. Do you consider yourself to be a pessimist or an optimist? And, you know, sometimes those can be kind of overplayed or exaggerated, and usually everybody's a little bit of a mix of both. But I know in general, there are some of you who are glass half full people. Everything's positive. You can always see the bright side of something, and you can, you know, either help or annoy all the people around you with your cheerfulness in any situation. And then on the other hand, there's people who are, are just kind of negative. You see the glass is half empty. You can always think of the worst way something could possibly go. Um, and then there's also the third category. This is my favorite which is people who call themselves realists, but everyone around them calls them pessimists. You think you're just saying it like it is, but actually you're, you're also seeing things in a negative light most of the time. And here's why this question matters for us today. The world that we live in, especially right now, especially over the last year, has a lot of things to feel negatively about going on. Um, there are things that are genuinely difficult, painful, fearful, hard for us. And so as a Christian, it can be hard to know, how am I supposed to view this stuff? Am I like supposed to just be naively positive because Christians are supposed to be happy? Am I supposed to just be kind of doom and gloom and bleak like everyone around me? How do I as a Christian look with honesty at a difficult and painful world, but still try to maintain some sense of hope and positivity? And believe it or not, the story today of Israel and their failed attempt to enter the promised land is a story that has a lot to say about that for us. So let's dive in. This takes place in Numbers chapter 13. This is Israel right at the cusp of entering the promised land. They've been rescued from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've received the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai. They've seen God's glory. They've had some adventures already, but now they finally have arrived at the border of the promised land. And this is where things take a turn. This is Numbers 13, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. So right when they get there to the edge of the promised land, God tells Moses to send spies in, and they select chiefs, a head from each tribe, 12 men, to go in and spy out the land. And right there in verse 2, there's a really important note. God calls it the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And this is just a powerful reassurance of what this land is to them. He's telling them, this land is as good as yours. I promised it to your forefathers. I'm giving it to you. I am with you all the way. And so, again, this would bring to the minds of the Israelites the promises made to their forefathers by God that he's going to give them this good land. This is a God who provides for his people. They've already seen that, and he's telling them, this is the land that I'm giving to you. We call it the promised land all the time. And we're so used to that as a title that it's really easy to forget that for the people of Israel, that title meant something. It meant this is the land that God has guaranteed he would give to them. 
And that's the context you're supposed to have entering into this story. God has already promised this land to these people. So the next few verses go on to list the names of everyone who's going in to spy out the land, and it includes a couple of prominent characters from this story and later, Joshua and Caleb. And then in verse 17, we pick the story up again. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negeb and up into the hill country and see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Now the idea here is go in and do your recon, understand what's going on in this place. And so there's a practical purpose here of knowing kind of what you're up against, what kind of opponents you're going to be facing. But a big piece of their job is also to bring back this fruit. And it's emphasized here, bring some of the fruit. It's the season of the first ripe grapes. And what that's for is for inspiration for the people of Israel. The idea is, yes, go in and and gather kind of the military intel that we're going to need, but also bring back examples of the, the abundance and plenty and goodness of the land that God has promised to your people. And maybe if the people of Israel see this fruit and see just how beautiful and wonderful this land is, especially compared to the wilderness we've been passing through, it will inspire them and encourage them to go in and take the land. And so that's what the spies do. They go and they they learn a lot about the kind of cities that are there, the types of people that are there. They gather a massive cluster of grapes. It's so big and heavy with grapes that it takes two men to carry it. They also get pomegranates and figs, and they bring all of this stuff back. So far, so good. They got their commission from Moses. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. But when they give the report of the land, things take a turn for the worst. Verse 25. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, other than Caleb, and we learn later in the next chapter, Joshua as well. Joshua and Caleb, they're the only ones who give a positive report. They say, no, 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 God has promised us this land. He's with us. We can go in and claim it. Other than the two of them, all 10 of the other spies give what the Bible calls a bad report about the land. They bring back the fruit, yes, but they also bring back hopelessness and discouragement. It's the exact opposite of the reason why they went in there. 
They don't come back with inspiration. They don't come back with reminders of God's goodness and God's promises to them. They come back and say, the people in this land are too strong for us. We cannot possibly go in there. Specifically, they talk about how they saw people there who are, they, call, they say they are Nephilim, the sons of Anak. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the story of the Bible, these Nephilim are, are these characters that are, have this kind of supernatural evil association with them. And they were thought of as giants, dangerous warriors who were giant. And so they're saying, compared to them, we were like grasshoppers. It's like every detail that the spies choose to include is designed to produce fear and dismay and hopelessness in the people of Israel. Instead of inspiring them by telling them about the goodness of the land that they're coming to, the people, the spies rather, tell the people everything that will discourage them and dismay them. And it works. Let's look at just the first few verses of the next chapter to see the horrible response of the people of Israel. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So this is just disaster. And if you've been following the series, you you know that some of this sounds very familiar. I mean, the people of Israel grumbling against Moses and against God are, that's a standard thing that we've seen already a couple of times, that when things get bad, they grumble, they complain, and they direct their attention and their complaints to God and to his chosen leader, Moses. But this is a new low. They see the land, they're at the border of the land, and when they hear about what's in it, they say, we don't even want to go in there. And not only that, but they actually cast aspersions at God and his intentions. He says, you've brought us here just to die so that our little ones will become prey to the people of this land. Why didn't you just kill us in Egypt with the Egyptians? Why didn't you just kill us in the wilderness? You brought us all the way here just so that we would die. And then they say, it'd be better for us to go back to Egypt. And the text actually says that they say among each other, let's, let's depose Moses, pick our own new leader, and we'll take everybody back to Egypt. And you might recall from Isaac's sermon last week that this theme of returning to Egypt carries serious spiritual implications. They want that land and its gods, not the land God promised them and not the God who has carried them this far. They say, we don't want this God and this land, we want Egypt the place where we suffered in slavery, the place that we were rescued from, we would rather be there. And the consequences of this are devastating. Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel and spares them, but still what God ends up saying is that he is going to send Israel into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering, a year for every day that the spies spent spying out the land. And the intention behind that is he says, none of this current generation, none of the adults who are part of the congregation now, specifically he says, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test and not obeyed my voice. That's chapter 14, verse 22. He says, none of those men, none of that generation of adults is going to enter into the promised land. They're going to wander in the wilderness 
until that entire generation has passed away, and it will be their children, the next generation, that will come in and claim the land. It's a devastating consequence. And it's interesting because there's a sense in which he's, he's giving them what they demanded. I mean, they say, why didn't we just die in the wilderness rather than go into the land that God promised us? And God's response is almost like, now you will. Forty years of wilderness wandering are the result of this moment of faithlessness and disobedience. And so, as a result of that, Israel is going to spend 40 years learning hard lesson after hard lesson after hard lesson in the wilderness before they return under Joshua's leadership and go back in. The only two adults of this generation of Israelites who enter the promised land are Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who gave a good report about the land. So what happened here? What went wrong? We're witnessing a moment of incredible faithlessness. They view the situation, the spies view the situation from such a specifically, exclusively human point of view. There's no trust in God's provision. There's no faith in God. And a lot of the time when we talk about faith in God, especially as Christians, we have this kind of abstract idea, you know, we picture it being like blind faith. You just have to trust in God even though you have no reason to. But the point of the story, a big part of the point of it, is that the faith that Israel is expected to have is based upon example after example of God's faithfulness to them up to this point. That's why God says, none of these people who've seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt are going to go in because they have seen example after example of God's ability to overcome adversity on their behalf. I mean, these are people who saw the 10 plagues of Egypt. They saw God part the Red Seas. They were fed manna from heaven in the wilderness. They drank water that poured out of a rock when they were thirsty. And they know the promises of God to bring them into this land. But in that situation, they don't put any trust in him. They look at the situation and they're so focused on that which is fearful and that which is hopeless that they can't put their faith in God. And here's the thing. We Christians face a similar danger in our world today. As I said at the very beginning of this message, we live in a world full of bad news, full of things to be worried and hopeless about. But just like the spies that entered into the promised land, we have been given in God's word these, these glimpses, these hints at the glorious good things that God has promised us. We have examples of his faithfulness in the past, and we have promises of his goodness and mercy towards us in the future. We are like those spies who have seen glimpses of what God has promised. And so the question before us is, are we going to be like Caleb and Joshua and face the fearful things head on and say, no, we trust that God will do for us what he has said he will do for us? Or are we going to be like the 10 spies who give a bad report, who in spite of all of God's promises and faithfulness say, no, there's, there are too many obstacles for us to overcome. There's no way that this can turn out right, that this can go the way that God has said it will go. One kind of New Testament way of talking about this is to ask, are we prepared to be citizens of heaven? Paul in several places and also Peter talk about Christians as citizens of heaven. Here's one example from Philippians 3 verse 20. After um, talking about 
people who have their minds, Paul says, set on earthly things. He says, don't be like people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their minds are set upon earthly things. Then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's the thing. When we hear the idea of being a citizen of heaven, most of the way that we're used to thinking about that and talking about that is, hey, we're here on earth. We have to live out our time and our life here on earth. But ultimately, my citizenship is in heaven, and that's where I'm going to go when I die. So our citizenship in heaven to us typically means, hey, you know, we just got to wait out our time here on earth, and eventually we're going to go home to heaven and everything can fall apart and get horrible and be terrible down here. And you know what? It doesn't matter because when it's all over, I'm heading up there. But here's the thing. For Paul and for his original readers, that's not at all what the idea of being a citizen of a different land would have meant to them. This is a very common idea in this period of history. To be a Roman citizen who didn't live in Rome was common and carried a particular meaning. I mean, it was true of Paul himself. Paul was a Roman citizen who didn't live in Rome. And a city like Philippi that's receiving this is a Roman colony. So it's not in Rome, but it was full of Roman citizens. And those Roman citizens weren't living in Philippi as expatriates thinking that someday they were going to return to Rome. Like they just have to do their time in Philippi and then they're going home. Now, Rome in the first century is already completely overcrowded. There's not a place for them to go back to. That's not the plan at all. The plan for these citizens is to be sent out from Rome to spread Rome's influence far and wide. The Roman Empire had its eyes on expanding and taking over the entire world. So if you're a Roman citizen who lives outside of Rome, out in a place like Philippi, the whole point is you bring Rome there. You bring the culture and the influence of Rome to those places. You're not just waiting to go back to Rome. You're going to stay there and bring Rome with you. And this is precisely the idea behind Paul saying we are citizens of heaven. It's not just wait out your time down here on earth until you die so you can go back to heaven. The whole point, he says, from heaven, we await a savior. Heaven is coming here. And in the meantime, we as Christians are part of heaven's advance force, bringing the influence of heaven on earth. That's why we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so with that in mind, living a Christian life doesn't just mean avoiding bad things and doing good things just for its own sake, but actually trying to expand and extend the influence of heaven here on earth to give people a foretaste of the country to which you actually belong. And one of the key elements of that identity as a citizen of heaven is and always has been Christian hope. See, we are, as Christians, by definition, good news people even in a bad news world. And it's not about optimism versus pessimism because, you know, optimism says we, we maybe ignore the bad things and highlight the good things. And pessimism is, well, we maybe downplay the good things and prop up the bad things. Christians can be completely aware and mature and, and cognizant of every single bad, horrible, dangerous thing that they face. Every reason why the rest of the world around them and us is is hopeless and difficult. In other words, if you're like that spy into the promised land, you see those giants. 
I mean, this is one of the crucial things to understand about the spies into the promised land. It's not like they're making stuff up. It's not like everything was fine and they came back and made up a bunch of lies to discourage the people. What they saw was real. There were fortified strongholds. There were enemy armies. There were military places with better technology and numbers and strategy. All of that stuff was real. And so the problem wasn't that they were making up things to be worried about. The problem was that they allowed those earthly fears to overcome their faith in God's promises and God's power. And so as Christians, it's not, it's not an optimism versus pessimism thing. Christians aren't called to be naive or just to be, you know, kind of pie in the sky, everything's fine all the time. No, we see the giants. We see the dangers. And we look at them and say, in spite of this stuff, in spite of these very good reasons to be afraid, I will be hopeful because I trust in the God who has proven himself time and time again. I trust in the promises of a God who keeps his promises. See, to be hopeful like that in the world that we live in now is not being naive. It's not being foolish. It's actually one of the most countercultural acts of rebellion a person can engage in. To look at the world and say, no, I see all of this and I choose to be hopeful. Not because I have all the answers, but because I trust in the promises of God. So Christian, see yourself as one of those spies into the promised land, as someone who has seen glimpses of that ultimate promise. It's, it's not clear. It's not perfect. It's like seeing in a shadowy, dim mirror, Paul says, but you have seen glimpses of God's good promises. And so we carry the fruit of that future land into this world. We live like citizens of that place now and tell the world, yeah, there are challenges to overcome, but our God has been faithful and our God will be faithful. Christians, just as, as the Jews before us, are people who have a future-oriented hope that is based on past history, past historical reality. We trust in God because we've seen his faithfulness. And as a Christian, the ultimate example of that that you have to look to is that of Jesus on the cross, dying in your place, securing your eternal life and salvation. So we look to the future faithfulness of God. We trust that he will keep his promises because we have seen in our own history and in the history of the world and humanity, God's faithfulness to us time and again. So I encourage you today, whatever you're facing personally in your life and whatever you see in the broader world around you that is discouraging and hopeless and fearful, it is your role as a Christian to say, in the face of those things, I will trust in God. I will have hope. I will bring back the good fruit of that future land that we're going to and tell everyone that we know about the good news of the God who has saved us. Let's bring that fruit back. Let's be those spies into the promised land. And let's tell the world around us of God's goodness and the trust that we have that he will do the things he's promised.